0: Hello, hello, and welcome to today's episode of The State of the Fandom, our, par- our podcast for parents. This is a rated R podcast. Please do not listen to this podcast if you are under the age of 18.
1: Yes, please don't.
0: Because we will use many, many words such as fudge and fluff And if you do not know what words we are referring to, when we say the F word, if you think that the F word means fluff word, you should not be listening to this podcast. Now, what is our topic for today, Sir Labrador?
1: The topic for the day is staying on the road, and... That's an important one. What red lights are... Oh, and Rob and AI, is it sentient by now?
0: Great question. So, uh... Our, our, our dear friend Sir Labrador Is a Labrador And so he, he thinks in, in a stream of consciousness That is faster than the speed of light yes. uh, The speed of light is very fast But Sir Labrador's thoughts are faster So we're going to reel it back Just a little bit So the question that you asked Before we started recording yep. Was What makes a sentient life form?
1: Yes so, What makes a sentient life form?
0: What is sentience and it, can we create sentient robots? This is a great question. Now, what is your answer to this question? Is, is it possible, here's the first question, is it possible for us to create sentient robots?
1: Um, I would say that, that it is probable that we create, that is possible to accidentally create sentience, yes.
0: Interesting, okay. So, let's let's go even simpler, just to make sure, because there may be many people in our audience who went to school before the word sentience was in common usage. Yes. In terms of technology, in terms of sentient robot. Yep. That is a relatively recent concept. That if you went to school in the 1940s, that was not a concept you were taught in school. The The idea of sentient robots had not been invented
1: yet by Alan Turing.
0: Yes. Now, so, as, what is sentience?
1: Uh, sentience is... And I want to just clear up, not just sentient robots, I was thinking more sentient artificial life form. Sure.
0: So uh, we're going to use the word robot just because it's easier to understand. Yes. But yes, uh, uh, a sentient... Consciousness could be a computer. It could be a robot. It could be a satellite floating through space. It, the The form of the robot does not matter. The point is that it could be sentient. So, what is sentience, my friend?
1: Uh, sentience is ascending up. Uh, okay, sentience is thinking like a human being, having empathy for things, having compassion for things. These are all symptoms and elements of sentience. I I love that you use the
0: word symptom, because a symptom is part of a disease. So are we classifying (laughs) sentience as a disease is my next question, because I could make a very interesting argument of why sentience is a disease,
1: but is that what you meant to say? I would say sentience at this point is potentially a just straight up symbiotic relationship between different life forms that make up a human body, because there is an ungodly amount of life forms that create a human body. It's kind of insane.
0: That is a true statement, and when we do our um, when we do our podcast series about life sciences, we will talk about it in detail. But. I'm going to give you a scientific definition of sentience. Okay. Okay? So you gave a wonderful intuitive definition. Yes! So we have a wonderful relationship, listeners. My dear Labrador is very good at emotional and intuitive thinking. Yes. And I am not. I am good at logical and rational thinking. Uh Mm-hmm. Completely devoid of emotion in most cases. So... A way that you would define sentience in a scientific way would be to say something like this: Sentience is the ability to think about existence. Okay. Yep. So, what is existence? That we're going way back, way back to the beginning of kindergarten now. What is existence?
1: Um.
0: What is the difference between something existing and not existing?
1: It being there? Okay.
0: What is the difference between something that is real and something that is not real?
1: Uh, physical aspect interacting with society? Uh, not exactly.
0: Close, but not quite. Okay, so. For something to be real to a human being, a human being must be able to perceive it. Okay. So, uh, you you could go back as far as Descartes, which would have been in the 1600s, I believe. I'd, I'd have to look it up. I haven't been to the 1600s in quite a while, is so a Labrador? So I don't remember. Fair enough. Uh, so, Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am. Okay. Yep. One of the most famous quotes in philosophy is, I think, therefore, I am. Now, when I say existence, what I mean is things that people can perceive. Because, for example, an emotion exists, right? Yes. So if you feel happy, I would, I would classify that as your emotion exists, right? Yes. Or if I feel upset. I would classify that as something that exists. Now, I can't touch it. I can't hold it in my hand and say this is my emotion of happiness. But it is something that is real to me. Yes, it is something that exists. Okay? So, existence is not This this is something that most people do not understand. Existence is not ...tied to physical reality. Okay. For something to exist, it must be perceptible yep. by human beings. Okay. So, spirituality, for example. You, you cannot... I, I encourage someone to try, because I would love <sighs> to see them try. You cannot make a physical object that is called spirituality. That, that does not exist. A, a physical object, and you, you you can't you can't point to this post office box and say this is spirituality.
1: No, but what you can do is attribute say a post office box to a holy relic. Correct. Now that would not be
0: spirituality, that would be a spiritual object. Yep. Spirituality is different, spirituality is a concept. So for example. Okay? If I, again, we'll use a physical object as an example, okay? So here in my hand, I am holding a mask. Okay? Yep. Now I am going to say that this mask is the concept of freedom. Would that be a correct statement?
1: Correct and incorrect at the same time, depending on people's perception. Correct. So, this mask is not freedom.
0: No. Freedom is a concept. Freedom is a thought. Some people would see a mask as a symbol of oppression. Correct. And some people would see it as a symbol of liberation, of liberation from COVID. Yes. So, it depends on your point of view. It does. It's very weird. Yes. So, the Im- existence has to do with human thought. Mm-hmm. And not with physical reality. No. Now, let me explain one more concept, and then you have the floor. Okay. Okay. So, why is our thought more real to a human being
1: than the physical world? So,
0: you have the floor to answer this question.
1: Because thoughts provide objects power. Now. Correct. Take the American flag, for example. Here in the United States, it's the most goddamn American thing that you, man, mankind's ever seen, according to ourselves. Take that same American flag over to the Middle East, you're going to get shot in the face and the flag burned. Correct. <laughs> and so the same symbol has. The com- American
0: flag has completely different connotation yes. based on who you ask.
1: Okay, I still have them before. Yep, go ahead. Sorry, I was
0: just explaining.
1: I was going to get that, but that's fine. So, that being said, that the American flag is the most, to us Americans, the most powerful goddamn implement there is. There's a reason why we uh, pledge allegiance to our flag. Now, audience, I know most of you haven't had to think about this in a while, but just to run it down real quick, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and for the Republic... And to the Republic... And to the Republic For which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for everyone in this car at the moment.
0: For liberty and justice for all.
1: (laughs) I'm taking a little more liberal interpretation.
0: That's fine. No, no, but here's the thing about the pledge. If we're going to talk about the pledge... The pledge, every single word in the pledge has meaning.
1: It does.
0: And so getting the words correct is important. It is. So, I pledge allegiance to the flag is very different from I pledge allegiance for the flag. Yes. So th- those two sentences are completely different, and there's only one word difference. It is. So anyway. Very
1: true. Now. So, continue. Why do we pledge allegiance to a flag instead of a nation? Instead of a king, queen, tyrant?
0: So, for example, in Britain their national anthem is, God save the queen. Yes. Before, before, uh, you know, they had a couple of queens, you know, a a couple of uh, hundred years ago, it was, God save the king. Yes. So, why do people in Britain pledge allegiance, quote unquote, uh, not exactly, but close enough, why do they pledge allegiance to a king or queen, and we pledge allegiance to a flag? What does a flag and a king have in common?
1: A flag, actually, I would say, There's very distinct differences between a king and a flag. Because a flag is a concept and idea in its totality. A king is a physical, tangible object that can make decisions.
0: I I like how you just called a king an object. It's very (laughs) funny. But I I, I know the differences, my love. The differences are very obvious. Yes. What do
1: they have in common is my question. I wanted to get the differences out first. Because what they have in common... A relatively minute, my own personal opinion, of they represent their governments.
0: Correct. So, there are many differences between a king and a flag. Yes. A king is generally a person. Yes. A, a political leader is generally a person. Now, on, a, on occasion, there have been dogs elected as mayors.
1: So a, a political figure does not have to be a person. I'd rather have a dog president at this point. <laughs> well, that's why we're going to get you elected. <laughs> uh, but
0: a flag is not a person. Oh. I think we can all agree on that. It is an object. But they... what both of these concepts, okay, I'm not talking about the person a king. I'm talking about the concept of a king. Yes. The thing that they have in common is that they are both symbols. Yes. Okay. So a a king. What what? Okay. Here we'll ask it this way. What is different between a blanket and a flap? So like just a, just a plain white
1: blanket doesn't have any design on it uh, versus a flap. A blanket is something that you use typically. So they're both made out of cloth, right? Yep. And if it's white, you can use it to surrender. So that would be another version of a symbol. Yes.
0: Okay. So a white One flag. Mile.
1: Turn right on Mahler
0: Road. Is just a symbol of surrender, right? Yes. Okay. So the difference between a blanket and a flag
1: is. The flag represents the nation. The, the ind- difference is. The The meaning of the symbol. I was getting there, hon. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Like I said, the flag represents the nation, which gives the meaning of the flag relevancy to the rest of the world. Correct. Now, take the Star Spangled Banner, for example. The song? Yep. The song and the story behind the song. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Now, here's one thing.
1: The British tried destroying our flag. You know who held it up? Manually, goddamn patriots on the goddamn 4th of fucking July. America, hell yeah! Hell yeah! Now, a little speech I would like to give. No, please go ahead. The soil of freedom is watered with the blood of patriots. That's true. No, no, no. Right. To President be fair, drive.
0: that is a very nationalistic way of thinking, which isn't wrong,
1: and nationalism can be healthy.
0: Correct. So, this is some. Uh, we, we're going to pause for a moment to go inside. Yep. But uh, so we'll we'll pause this uh, this episode here, and we'll pick it up on on another day. So, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful day. And uh, here's a message from our sponsor as we go into our next segment. Hello everyone, Um, so I'm going to be showing off one of my personal favorite uh, audiobooks. Uh, It's called Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. And now I'm publishing this not to make money off of it, there's not going to be any ads on this episode. It's purely for an educational purpose, which clearly falls under fair use guidelines, especially since I'm going to be providing commentary as I listen to the book. So uh, the publisher of the book is welcome to contact me and I'll be happy to take it down. Uh, And I will just leave up the portions that are only my own original commentary and not the book itself. Uh, But I would hope that the publisher of the book uh, would understand the uh, fair use law and would be able to uh, allow me to make a social commentary for the purpose of education and not the purpose of making money as outlined in the fair use law. So anyway, with all that being said, uh, let's give this a listen.
2: This is Audible. presents the unabridged recording of Rules for Radicals: A Practical Primer for Realistic Radicals by Saul D. Alinsky performed by Scott Lang Personal acknowledgments To Jason Epstein for his prodding, patience, and understanding and for being prologue the Rules for Radicals The purpose The life of man upon earth is a warfare. Job 7.1 What follows is for those who want to change the world from what it is to what they believe it should be. The Prince was written by Machiavelli for the haves on how to hold power. Rules for Radicals is written for the have-nots on how to take it away. In this book, We are concerned with how to create mass organizations to seize power and give it to the people, to realize the democratic dream of equality, justice, peace, cooperation, equal and full opportunities for education, full and useful employment, health, and the creation of those circumstances in which man can have the chance to live by values that give meaning to life. We are talking about a mass power organization which will change the world into a place where all men and women walk erect. In the spirit of that credo of the Spanish Civil War, better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. This means revolution. The significant changes in history have been made by revolutions. There are people who say that it is not revolution, but evolution that brings about change but evolution is simply the term used by non-participants to denote a particular sequence of revolutions as they synthesized into a specific major social change. In this book, I propose certain general observations, propositions, and concepts of the mechanics of mass movements and the various stages of the cycle of action and reaction in revolutions. This is not an ideological book, except insofar as argument for change, rather than for the status quo, can be called an ideology. Different people in different places, in different situations, and different times will construct their own solutions and symbols of salvation for those times. This book will not contain any panacea or dogma. I detest and fear dogma. I know that all revolutions must have ideologies to spur them on. That in the heat of conflict these ideologies tend to be smelted into rigid dogmas, claiming exclusive possession of the truth and the keys to paradise is tragic. Dogma is the enemy of human freedom. Dogma must be watched for and apprehended at every turn and twist of the revolutionary movement. The human spirit glows from that small inner light of doubt whether we are right, while those who believe with complete certainty that they possess the right are dark inside and darken the world outside with cruelty, pain, and injustice. Those who enshrine the poor or have-nots are as guilty as other dogmatists and just as dangerous. To diminish the danger that ideology will deteriorate into dogma, and to protect the free, open, questing, and creative mind of man, as well as to allow for change, no ideology should be more specific than that of America's founding fathers for the general welfare. Niels Bohr, the great atomic physicist, admirably stated the civilized position on dogmatism. Every sentence I utter must be understood not as an affirmation, but as a question. I will argue that man's hopes lie in the acceptance of the great law of change, that a general understanding of the principles of change will provide clues for rational action and an awareness of the realistic relationship between means and ends and how each determines the other. I hope that these pages will contribute to the education of the radicals of today and to the conversion of hot, emotional, impulsive passions that are impotent and frustrating to actions that will be calculated, purposeful, and effective. An example of the political insensitivity of many of today's so-called radicals and the lost opportunities is found in this account of an episode during the trial of the Chicago 7. Over the weekend, some 150 lawyers from all parts of the country had gathered in Chicago to picket the federal building in protest against Judge Hoffman's arrest of the four lawyers. This delegation, which was supported by 13 members of the faculty of Harvard Law School, and which included a number of other professors as well submitted a brief as friend of the court which called judge hoffman's actions a travesty of justice which threatens to destroy the confidence of the american people in the entire judicial process by 10 o'clock the angry lawyers had begun to march around the federal building where they were joined by hundreds of student radicals several black panthers and a hundred or more blue helmeted chicago police shortly before noon. About 40 of the picketing lawyers carried their signs into the lobby of the federal building, despite the notice posted on the glass wall beside the entrance and signed by Judge Campbell, forbidding such demonstrations within the building. Hardly had the lawyers entered, however, than Judge Campbell himself descended to the lobby, dressed in his black robes and accompanied by a marshal, a stenographer, and his court clerk. Surrounded by the angry lawyers, who were themselves encircled by a ring of police and federal marshals, the judge proceeded to hold court then and there. He announced that unless the pickets withdrew immediately, he would charge them with contempt. This time, he warned, there could be no question that their contempt would occur in the presence of the court, and would thus be subject to summary punishment. No sooner had he made this announcement, however, than a voice from the throng shouted, Fuck you, Campbell. After a moment of tense silence, followed by a cheer from the crowd and a noticeable stiffening among the police, Judge Campbell himself withdrew. Then the lawyers too left the lobby and rejoined the pickets on the sidewalk. Jason Epstein the Great Conspiracy Trial, Random House, 1970. The picketing lawyers threw away a beautiful opportunity to create a nationwide issue. Offhand, there would seem to have been two choices, either of which would have forced the judge's hand and kept the issue going. Some one of the lawyers could have stepped up to the judge after the voice said, fuck you, Campbell, said that the lawyers there did not support personal obscenities, but they were not leaving. Or all the lawyers together could have chorused with one voice, fuck you, Campbell. They did neither. Instead. They let the initiative pass from them to the judge and achieved nothing. Radicals must be resilient, adaptable to shifting political circumstances, and sensitive enough to the process of action and reaction to avoid being trapped by their own tactics and forced to travel a road not of their choosing. In short, radicals must have a degree of control over the flow of events. Here, I propose to present an arrangement of certain facts and general concepts of change, a step toward a science of revolution. All societies discourage and penalize ideas and writings that threaten the ruling status quo. It is understandable, therefore, that the literature of a have-society is a veritable desert whenever we look for writings on social change. Once the American Revolution was done with, we can find very little besides the right of revolution that is laid down in the Declaration of Independence as a fundamental right. 73 years later, Thoreau's brief essay on the duty of civil disobedience, followed by Lincoln's reaffirmation of the revolutionary right in 1861. As he said in his first inaugural, this country with its institutions belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. There are many phrases extolling the sacredness of revolution, that is, revolutions of the past. Our enthusiasm for the sacred right of revolution is increased and enhanced with the passage of time. The older the revolution, the more it recedes into history, the more sacred it becomes. Except for Thoreau's limited remarks, our society has given us few words of advice, few suggestions of how to fertilize social change. From the haves, on the other hand, there has come an unceasing flood of literature justifying the status quo. Religious, economic, social, political, and legal tracts endlessly attack all revolutionary ideas and action for change as immoral, fallacious and against God, country, and mother. These literary sedations by the status quo include the threat that, since all such movements are unpatriotic, subversive, spawned in hell and reptilian in their creeping insidiousness, dire punishments will be meted out to their supporters. All great revolutions, including Christianity, the various reformations, democracy, capitalism, and socialism have suffered these epithets in the times of their birth. To the status quo concerned about its public image, revolution is the only force which has no image but instead casts a dark, ominous shadow of things to come. The have-nots of the world, swept up in their present upheavals and desperately seeking revolutionary writings, can find such literature only from communists, both red and yellow. Here they can read about tactics, maneuvers, strategy, and principles of action in the making of revolutions. Since in this literature all ideas are embedded in the language of communism, revolution appears synonymous with communism. As U.S. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas wrote in The U.S. and Revolution, Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, Occasional Paper, Number 116, on trips to Asia, I often asked men in their 30s and 40s what they were reading when they were 18. They usually answered, Karl Marx. And when I asked them why, they replied, We were under colonial rule, seeking a way out. We wanted our independence. To get it, we had to make revolution. The only books on revolution were published by the communists. These men almost invariably had repudiated communism as a political cult, retaining, however, a tinge of socialism. As I talked with them, I came to realize the great opportunities we missed when we became preoccupied in fighting communism with bombs and with dollars, rather than with ideas of revolution, of freedom, of justice. When, in the throes of their revolutionary fervor, the have-nots hungrily turned to us in their first steps from starvation to subsistence, We respond with a bewildering, unbelievable, and meaningless conglomeration of abstractions about freedom, morality, equality, and the danger of intellectual enslavement by communistic ideology. This is accompanied by charitable handouts dressed up in ribbons of moral principle and freedom with the price tag of unqualified political loyalty to us. With the coming of the revolutions in Russia and China, we suddenly underwent a moral conversion and became concerned for the welfare of our brothers all over the world. Revolution by the have-nots has a way of inducing a moral revelation among the haves. Revolution by the have-nots also induces a paranoid fear. Now, therefore, we find every corrupt and repressive government the world around saying to us, Give us money and soldiers, or there will be a revolution, and the new leaders will be your enemies. Fearful of revolution and identifying ourselves as the status quo, we have permitted the communists to assume by default the revolutionary halo of justice for the have-nots. We then compound this mistake by assuming that the status quo everywhere must be defended and buttressed against revolution. Today, revolution has become synonymous with communism, while capitalism is synonymous with status quo. Occasionally, we will accept a revolution if it is guaranteed to be on our side, and then only when we realize that the revolution is inevitable. We abhor revolutions. We have permitted a suicidal situation to unfold wherein revolution and communism have become one. These pages are committed to splitting this political atom, separating this exclusive identification of communism with revolution. If it were possible for the have-nots of the world to recognize and accept the idea that revolution did not inevitably mean hate and war, cold or hot, from the United States, that alone would be a great revolution in world politics and the future of man. This is a major reason for my attempt to provide a revolutionary handbook not cast in a communist or capitalist mold but as a manual for the have-nots of the world, regardless of the color of their skins or their politics. My aim here is to suggest how to organize for power, how to get it, and to use it. I will argue that the failure to use power for a more equitable distribution of the means of life for all people signals the end of the revolution and the start of the counter-revolution. Revolution has always advanced with an ideological spear, just as the status quo has inscribed its ideology upon its shield. All of life is partisan. There is no dispassionate objectivity. The revolutionary ideology is not confined to a specific limited formula. It is a series of general principles rooted in Lincoln's May 19, 1856 statement. Be not deceived. Revolutions do not go backward. The ideology of change. This raises the question, what, if any, is my ideology? What kind of ideology, if any, can an organizer have who is working in and for a free society? The prerequisite for an ideology is possession of a basic truth. For example, a Marxist begins with his prime truth that all evils are caused by the exploitation of the proletariat by the capitalists. From this, he logically proceeds to the revolution to end capitalism, then into the third stage of reorganization, into a new social order, or the dictatorship of the proletariat, and finally the last stage, the political paradise of communism. The Christians also begin with their prime truth, the divinity of Christ, and the tripartite nature of God. Out of these prime truths flow a step-by-step ideology. An organizer working in and for an open society is in an ideological dilemma. To begin with, he does not have a fixed truth. Truth to him is relative and changing. Everything to him is relative and changing. He is a political relativist. He accepts the late Justice Learned Hands statement that The mark of a free man is that ever gnawing inner uncertainty as to whether or not he is right. The consequence is that he is ever on the hunt for the causes of man's plight and the general propositions that help to make some sense out of man's irrational world. He must constantly examine life, including his own, to get some idea of what it is all about. And he must challenge and test his own findings. Irreverence, essential to questioning, is a requisite. Curiosity becomes compulsive. His most frequent word is why some say it's no coincidence that the question mark is an inverted plow breaking up the hard soil of old beliefs and preparing for the new growth does this then mean that the organizer in a free society for a free society is rudderless no I believe that he has a far better sense of direction and compass than the closed society organizer with his rigid political ideology first the free society organizer is loose resilient fluid and on the move in a society which is itself in a state of constant change. To the extent that he is free from the shackles of dogma, he can respond to the realities of the widely different situations our society presents. In the end, he has one conviction, a belief that if people have the power to act, in the long run, they will, most of the time, reach the right decisions. The alternative to this would be rule by the elite, either a dictatorship or some form of political aristocracy. I am not concerned if this faith in people is regarded as a prime truth and therefore a contradiction of what I have already written, for life is a story of contradictions. Believing in people, the radical has the job of organizing them so that they will have the power and opportunity to best meet each unforeseeable future crisis as they move ahead in their eternal search for those values of equality, justice, freedom, peace, a deep concern for the preciousness of human life, and all those rights and values propounded by Judeo-Christianity and the democratic political tradition. Democracy is not an end, but the best means toward achieving these values. This is my credo, for which I live, and if need be, die. The basic requirement for the understanding of the politics of change is to recognize the world as it is. We must work with it on its terms if we are to change it to the kind of world we would like it to be. We must first see the world as it is, and not as we would like it to be. We must see the world as as all political realists have, in terms of what men do and not what they ought to do, as Machiavelli and others have put it. It is painful to accept fully the simple fact that one begins from where one is, that one must break free of the web of illusions one spins about life. Most of us view the world not as it is, but as we would like it to be. The preferred world can be seen any evening on television in the succession of programs where the good always wins, and that is, until the late evening newscast when suddenly we are plunged into the world as it is. With some exceptions, in one of America's Shangri-Las of escape from the world as it is, Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, on the coast of the beautiful Monterey Peninsula, radio station KRML used to broadcast this sunshine news, which headlines the positive, only the good news of the world. Intellectuals who would scoff at sunshine news are no exception to the preference for already formulated answers. Political realists see the world as it is an arena of power politics moved primarily by perceived immediate self-interests, where morality is rhetorical rationale for expedient action and self-interest. Two examples would be the priest who wants to be a bishop and bootlicks and politics his way up, justifying it with the rationale. After I get to be bishop, I'll use my office for Christian reformation. Or the businessman who reasons, first I'll make my million, and after that I'll go for the real things in life. Unfortunately, one changes in many ways on the road to Bishopric or the first million. And then one says, I'll wait until I'm a Cardinal and then I can be more effective. Or I can do a lot more after I get two million. And so it goes. Each year for a number of years, the activists in the graduating class from a major Catholic seminary near Chicago would visit me for a day just before their ordination with questions about values, revolutionary tactics and such. Once at the end of such a day, one of the seminarians said, Mr. Alinsky, before we came here, we met and agreed that there was one question we particularly wanted to put to you. We're going to be ordained, and then we'll be assigned to different parishes as assistance to, frankly, stuffy, reactionary old pastors. They will disapprove of a lot of what you and we believe in, and we will be put into a killing routine. Our question is, how do we keep our faith in true Christian values, everything we hope to do to change the system? That was easy. I answered, When you go out that door, just make your own personal decision about whether you want to be a bishop or a priest, and everything else will follow. In this world, laws are written for the lofty aim of the common good, and then acted out in life on the basis of the common greed. In this world, irrationality clings to man like his shadow, so that the right things are done for the wrong reasons. Afterwards, we dredge up the right reasons for justification. It is a world not of angels, but of angles where men speak of moral principles but act on power principles. A world where we are always moral and our enemies always immoral. A world where reconciliation means that when one side gets the power and the other side gets reconciled to it, then we have reconciliation. A world of religious institutions that have, in the main, come to support and justify the status quo so that today organized religion is materially solvent and spiritually bankrupt. We live with a Judeo-Christian ethic, It has not only accommodated itself to, but justified slavery, war, and every other ugly human exploitation of whichever status quo happened to prevail. We live in a world where good is a value dependent on whether we want it. In the world as it is, the solution of each problem inevitably creates a new one. In the world as it is, there are no permanent happy or sad endings. Such endings belong to the world of fantasy, the world as we would like it to be. The world of children's fairy tales, where they lived happily ever after. In the world as it is, the stream of events surges endlessly onward with death as the only terminus. One never reaches the horizon. It is always just beyond, ever beckoning onward. It is the pursuit of life itself. This is the world as it is. This is where you start. It is not a world of peace and beauty and dispassionate rationality. But as Henry James once wrote, life is, in fact, a battle. Evil is insolent and strong, beauty enchanting but rare, goodness very apt to be weak, folly very apt to be defiant, wickedness to carry the day, imbeciles to be in great places, people of sense in small, and mankind generally unhappy. But the world as it stands is no narrow illusion, no phantasm, no evil dream of the night. We wake up to it again forever and ever, and we can neither forget it, nor deny it, nor dispense with it. Henry James' statement is an affirmation of that of Job. The life of man upon earth is a warfare. Disraeli put it succinctly, political life must be taken as you find it. Once we have moved into the world as it is, then we begin to shed fallacy after fallacy. The prime illusion we must rid ourselves of is the conventional view in which things are seen separate from their inevitable counterparts. We know intellectually that everything is functionally interrelated. But in our operations, we segment and isolate all values and issues. Everything about us must be seen as the indivisible partner of its converse, light and darkness, good and evil, life and death. From the moment we are born, we begin to die. Happiness and misery are inseparable. So are peace and war. The threat of destruction from nuclear energy conversely carries the opportunity of peace and plenty. And so with every component of this universe, all is paired in this enormous Noah's Ark of life. Life seems to lack rhyme or reason, or even a shadow of order, unless we approach it with the key of converses. Seeing everything in its duality, we begin to get some dim clues to direction and what it's all about. It is in these contradictions and their incessant interacting tensions that creativity begins. As we begin to accept the concept of contradictions, we see every problem or issue in its whole, interrelated sense. We then recognize that for every positive, there is a negative. And that there is nothing positive without its concomitant negative, nor any political paradise without its negative side. For more than 4,000 years, the Chinese have been familiar with the principle of complementarity in their philosophical life. They believe that from the illimitable, nature, god or gods, came the principle of creation, which they called the great extreme. And from the great extreme came the two principles, or dual powers, yang and yin, out of which came everything else. Yang and yin have been defined as positive and negative, light and darkness, male and female, or numerous other examples of opposites or converses. Niels Bohr pointed out that the appearance of contradictions was a signal that the experiment was on the right track. There is not much hope if we have only one difficulty, but when we have two, we can match them off against each other. Bohr called this complementarity, meaning that the interplay of seemingly conflicting forces or opposites is the actual harmony of nature. Whitehead similarly observed, in formal logic, a contradiction is the signal of a defeat, but in the evolution of real knowledge, it marks the first step in progress towards a victory. Everywhere you look, all change shows this complementarity. In Chicago, the people of Upton Sinclair's jungle, then the worst slum in America, crushed by starvation wages when they worked, demoralized, diseased, living in rotting shacks, were organized. Their banners proclaimed equality for all races, job security, and a decent life for all. With their power, they fought and won. Today, as part of the middle class, they are also part of our racist discriminatory culture. The Tennessee Valley Authority was one of the prized jewels in the Democratic crown. Visitors came from every part of the world to see, admire, and study this physical and social achievement of a free society. Today it is the scourge of the Cumberland Mountains strip mining for coal and wreaking havoc on the countryside. The CIO was the militant champion of America's workers. In its ranks, directly and indirectly, were all of America's radicals. They fought the corporate structure of the nation and won. Today, merged with the AF of L, it is an entrenched member of the establishment and its leader supports the war in Vietnam. Another example is today's high-rise public housing projects. Originally conceived and carried through as major advances in ridding cities of slums, they involved the tearing down of rotting, rat-infested tenements, and the erection of modern apartment buildings. They were acclaimed as America's refusal to permit its people to live in the dirty shambles of the slums. It is common knowledge that they have turned into jungles of horror and now confront us with the problem of how we can either convert or get rid of them. They have become compounds of double segregation on the bases of both economy and race and a danger for anyone compelled to live in these projects, a beautiful positive dream has grown into a negative nightmare. It is the universal tale of revolution and reaction. It is the constant struggle between the positive and its converse negative, which includes the reversal of roles so that the positive of today is the negative of tomorrow and vice versa. This view of nature recognizes that reality is dual. The principles of quantum mechanics in physics apply even more dramatically to the mechanics of mass movements. This is true not only in complementarity, but in the repudiation of the hitherto universal concept of causality, whereby matter and physics were understood in terms of cause and effect, where for every effect there had to be a cause and one always produced the other. In quantum mechanics, causality was largely replaced by probability. An electron or atom did not have to do anything specific in response to a particular force. There was just a set of probabilities that it would react in this or that way. This is fundamental in the observations and propositions which follow. At no time in any discussion or analysis of mass movements, tactics, or any other phase of the problem can it be said that if this is done, then that will result. The most we can hope to achieve is an understanding of the probabilities consequent to certain actions. This grasp of the duality of all phenomena is vital in our understanding of politics. It frees one from the myth that one approach is positive and another negative. There is no such thing in life. One man's positive is another man's negative. The description of any procedure as positive or negative is the mark of a political illiterate. Once the nature of revolution is understood from the dualistic outlook, we lose our mono-view of a revolution and see it coupled with its inevitable counter-revolution. Once we accept and learn to anticipate the inevitable counter-revolution, we may then alter the historical pattern of revolution and counter-revolution from the traditional slow advance of two steps forward and one step backward to minimizing the latter. Each element with its positive and converse sides is fused to other related elements in an endless series of everything, so that the converse of revolution on one side is counter-revolution and on the other side, reformation and so on in an endless chain of connected converses. Class Distinctions The Trinity The setting for the drama of change has never varied. Mankind has been and is divided into three parts. The haves, the have-nots, and the have-a-little want-mores. On top are the haves with power, money, food, security, and luxury. They suffocate in their surpluses, while the have-nots starve. Numerically, The haves have always been the fewest. The haves want to keep things as they are and are opposed to change. Thermopolitically, they are cold and determined to freeze the status quo. On the bottom are the world's have-nots. On the world scene, they are by far the greatest in numbers. They are chained together by the common misery of poverty, rotten housing, disease, ignorance, political impotence, and despair. When they are employed, their jobs pay the least, and they are deprived in all areas basic to human growth. Caged by color, physical or political, they are barred from an opportunity to represent themselves in the politics of life. The haves want to keep, the have-nots want to get. Thermopolitically, they are a mass of cold ashes of resignation and fatalism. But inside, there are glowing embers of hope which can be fanned by the building of means of obtaining power. Once the fever begins, the flame will follow. They have nowhere to go but up. They hate the establishment of the haves, with its arrogant opulence, its police, its courts, and its churches. Justice, morality, law, and order are mere words when used by the haves, which justify and secure their status quo. The power of the have-nots rests only with their numbers. It has been said that the haves, living under the nightmare of possible threats to their possessions, are always faced with the question of, when do we sleep? While the perennial question of the have-nots is, when do we eat? The cry of the have-nots has never been, give us your hearts, but always, get off our backs. They ask not for love, but for breathing space. Between the haves and have-nots are the have a little, want mores, the middle class. Torn between upholding the status quo to protect the little they have, yet wanting change so they can get more. They become split personalities. They could be described as social, economic, and political schizoids. Generally, they seek the safe way, where they can profit by change and yet not risk losing the little they have. They insist on a minimum of three aces before playing a hand in the poker game of revolution. Thermopolitically, they are tepid and rooted in inertia. Today in Western society and particularly in the United States, they comprise the majority of our population. Yet in the conflicting interests and contradictions within the have a little, want mores is the genesis of creativity. Out of this class have come with few exceptions the great world leaders of change of the past centuries moses paul of tarsus martin luther robespierre george danton samuel adams alexander hamilton thomas jefferson napoleon bonaparte giuseppe garibaldi Nikolai lenin mahatma gandhi fidel castro tse Tung, and others just as the clash of interests within the have a little want mores has bred so many of the great leaders It has also spawned a particular breed stalemated by cross interests into inaction. These do-nothings profess a commitment to social change for ideals of justice, equality, and opportunity, and then abstain from and discourage all effective action for change. They are known by their brand. I agree with your ends, but not your means. They function as blankets, whenever possible, smothering sparks of dissension that promise to flare up into the fire of action. These do-nothings appear publicly as good men, humanitarian, concerned with justice and dignity. In practice, they are invidious. They are the ones Edmund Burke referred to when he said acidly, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Both the revolutionary leaders, or the doers, and the do-nothings will be examined in these pages. The history of prevailing status quos shows decay and decadence infecting the opulent materialism of the haves. The spiritual life of the haves is a ritualistic justification of their possessions. More than 100 years ago, Tocqueville commented, as did other students of America at that time, that self-indulgence accompanied by concern for nothing except personal, materialistic welfare was the major menace to America's future. Whitehead noted in Adventures of Ideas that the enjoyment of power is fatal to the subtleties of life. Ruling classes degenerate by reason of their lazy indulgence in obvious gratifications. In such a state, men may be said to fall asleep, for it is in sleep that we each turn away from the world about us to our private worlds. As Heraclitus said in Fragments, the waking have one world in common, sleepers have each a private world of his own. I must quote one more book pertinent to this subject. In Alice in Wonderland, Tiger Lily explains about the talking flowers to Alice. Tiger Lily points out that the flowers that talk grow out of hard beds of ground And, in most gardens, Tiger Lily says, they make the beds too soft, so that the flowers are always asleep. It is as though the great law of change had prepared the anesthetization of the victim prior to the social surgery to come. Change means movement. Movement means friction. Only in the frictionless vacuum of a non-existent abstract world can movement or change occur without that abrasive friction of conflict. In these pages, it is our open (laughs) political purpose to cooperate with the great law of change— To want otherwise would be like King Canute's commanding the tides and waves to cease. A word about my personal philosophy. It is anchored in optimism. It must be, for optimism brings with it hope, a future with a purpose, and therefore a will to fight for a better world. Without this optimism, there is no reason to carry on. If we think of the struggle as a climb up a mountain, then we must visualize a mountain with no top. We see a top, but when we finally reach it, The overcast rises and we find ourselves merely on a bluff. The mountain continues on up, now we see the real top ahead of us and strive for it, only to find we've reached another bluff, the top still above us, and so it goes on interminably. Knowing that the mountain has no top, that it is a perpetual quest from plateau to plateau, the question arises why the struggle, the conflict, the heartbreak, the danger, the sacrifice? Why the constant climb? Our answer. Is the same as that which a real mountain climber gives when he is asked why he does what he does because it's there because life is there ahead of you and either one tests oneself in its challenges or huddles in the valleys in a dreamless day-to-day existence whose only purpose is the preservation of an illusory security and safety the latter is what the vast majority of people choose to do fearing the adventurer into the unknown Paradoxically, they give up the dream of what may lie ahead on the heights of tomorrow for a perpetual nightmare, an endless succession of days fearing the loss of a tenuous security. Unlike the chore of the mythic Sisyphus, this challenge is not an endless pushing up of a boulder to the top of a hill, only to have it roll back again, the chore to be repeated eternally. It is pushing the boulder up an endless mountain. But unlike Sisyphus, we are always going further upward, and also unlike Sisyphus, Each stage of the trail upward is different, newly dramatic, an adventure each time. At times we do fall back and become discouraged, but it is not that we are making no progress. Simply, this is the very nature of life, that it is a climb, and that the resolution of each issue in turn creates other issues, born of plights which are unimaginable today. The pursuit of happiness is never-ending. Happiness lies in the pursuit." Confronted with the materialistic decadence of the status quo, one should not be surprised to find that all revolutionary movements are primarily generated from spiritual values and considerations of justice, equality, peace, and brotherhood. History is a relay of revolutions. The torch of idealism is carried by the revolutionary group until this group becomes an establishment. And then quietly, the torch is put down to wait until a new revolutionary group picks it up for the next leg of the run. Thus, the revolutionary cycle goes on. A major revolution to be won in the immediate future is the dissipation of man's illusion that his own welfare can be separate from that of all others. As long as man is shackled to this myth, so long will the human spirit languish. Concern for our private material well-being with disregard for the well-being of others is immoral according to the precepts of our Judeo-Christian civilization. But worse, it is stupidity worthy of the lower animals. It is man's foot still dragging in the primeval slime of his beginnings in ignorance and mere animal cunning. But those who know the interdependence of man to be his major strength in the struggle out of the muck have not been wise in their exhortations and moral pronouncements that man is his brother's keeper. On that score, the record of the past centuries has been a disaster, for it was wrong to assume that man would pursue morality on a higher level than his day-to-day living demanded. It was a disservice to the future to separate morality from man's daily desires and elevate it to a plane of altruism and self-sacrifice. The fact is that it is not man's better nature, but his self interest that demands that he be his brother's keeper. We now live in a world where no man can have a loaf of bread while his neighbor has none. If he does not share his bread, he dare not sleep, or his neighbor will kill him. To eat and sleep in safety, man must do the right thing, if for seemingly the wrong reasons, and be in practice his brother's keeper. I believe that man is about to learn that the most practical life is the moral life, and that the moral life is the only road to survival. He is beginning to learn that he will either share part of his material wealth or lose all of it, that he will respect and learn to live with other political ideologies if he wants civilization to go on. This is the kind of argument that man's actual experience equips him to understand and accept. This is the low road to morality. There is no other. Of means and ends. We cannot think first and act afterwards. From the moment of birth, we are immersed in action and can only fitfully guide it by taking thought. Alfred North Whitehead That perennial question, does the end justify the means, is meaningless as it stands. The real and only question regarding the ethics of means and ends is, and always has been, does this particular end justify this particular means? Life and how you live it is the story of means and ends. The end is what you want, and the means is how you get it. Whenever we think about social change, the question of means and ends arises. The man of action views the issue of means and ends in pragmatic and strategic terms. He has no other problem. He thinks only of his actual resources and the possibilities of various choices of action. He asks of ends only whether they are achievable and worth the cost, of means only whether they will work. To say that corrupt means corrupt the ends is to believe in the immaculate conception of ends and principles. The real arena is corrupt and bloody. Life is a corrupting process from the time a child learns to play his mother off against his father in the politics of when to go to bed. He who fears corruption, fears life. The practical revolutionary will understand Goethe's conscience is the virtue of observers and not of agents of action. In action, one does not always enjoy the luxury of a decision that is consistent both with one's individual conscience and the good of mankind. The choice must always be for the latter. Action is for mass salvation and not for the individual's personal salvation. He who sacrifices the mass good for his personal conscience has a peculiar conception of personal salvation. He doesn't care enough for people to be corrupted for them. The men who pile up the heaps of discussion and literature on the ethics of means and ends, which with rare exception is conspicuous for its sterility, rarely write about their own experiences in the perpetual struggle of life and change. They are strangers, moreover, to the burdens and problems of operational responsibility and the unceasing pressure for immediate decisions. They are passionately committed to a mystical objectivity where passions are suspect. They assume a non-existent situation where men dispassionately and with reason draw and devise means and ends as if studying a navigational chart on land. They can be recognized by one of two verbal brands. We agree with the ends, but not the means, or this is not the time, the means-and-end moralists, or non-doers, always wind up on their ends without any means. The means-and-ends moralists, constantly obsessed with the ethics of the means used by the have-nots against the haves, should search themselves as to their real political position. In fact, they are passive, but real allies of the haves. They are the ones Jacques Mertin referred to in his statement, the fear of soiling ourselves by entering the context of history is not virtue, but a way of escaping virtue. These non-doers were the ones who chose not to fight the Nazis in the only way they could have been fought. They were the ones who drew their window blinds to shut out the shameful spectacle of Jews and political prisoners being dragged through the streets. They were the ones who privately deplored the horror of it all and did nothing. This is the nadir of immorality. The most unethical of all means is the non-use of any means. It is this species of man who so vehemently and militantly participated in that classically idealistic debate at the old League of Nations on the ethical differences between defensive and offensive weapons. Their fears of action drive them to refuge in an ethics so divorced from the politics of life that it can apply only to angels, not to men. The standards of judgment must be rooted in the whys and wherefores of life as it is lived, the world as it is, not our wished-for fantasy of the world as it should be. I present here a series of rules pertaining to the ethics of means and ends. First, that one's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's personal interest in the issue. When we are not directly concerned, our morality overflows. As La Rochefoucauld put it, we all have strength enough to endure the misfortunes of others. Accompanying this rule is the parallel one that one's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's distance from the scene of conflict. The second rule of the ethics of means and ends is that the judgment of the ethics of means is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. If you actively opposed the Nazi occupation and joined the underground resistance, then you adopted the means of assassination, terror, property destruction, the bombing of tunnels and trains, kidnapping, and the willingness to sacrifice innocent hostages to the end of defeating the Nazis. Those who opposed the Nazi conquerors regarded the resistance as a secret army of selfless, patriotic idealists courageous beyond expectation, and willing to sacrifice their lives to their moral convictions. To the occupation authorities, however, these people were lawless terrorists, murderers, saboteurs, assassins, who believed that the end justified the means and were utterly unethical according to the mystical rules of war. Any foreign occupation would so ethically judge its opposition. However, in such conflict, neither protagonist is concerned with any value except victory. It is life or death. To us, The Declaration of Independence is a glorious document and an affirmation of human rights. To the British, on the other hand, it was a statement notorious for its deceit by omission. In the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Particulars attesting to the reasons for the revolution cited all of the injustices which the colonists felt that England had been guilty of, but listed none of the benefits. There was no mention of the food the colonies had received from the British Empire during times of famine, medicine during times of disease, soldiers during times of war with the Indians and other foes. Or the many other direct and indirect aids to the survival of the colonies. Neither was there notice of the growing number of allies and friends of the colonists in the British House of Commons, and the hope for imminent remedial legislation to correct the inequities under which the colonies suffered. Jefferson, Franklin, and others were honorable men, but they knew that the Declaration of Independence was a call to war. They also knew that a list of many of the constructive benefits of the British Empire to the colonists would have so diluted the urgency of the call to arms for the revolution as to have been self-defeating. The result might well have been a document attesting to the fact that justice weighted down the scale at least 60% on our side and only 40% on their side, and that because of that 20% difference, we were going to have a revolution. To expect a man to leave his wife, his children, and his home To leave his crops standing in the field and pick up a gun and join the revolutionary army for a 20% difference in the balance of human justice was to defy common sense. The Declaration of Independence as a declaration of war had to be what it was, a 100% statement of the justice of the cause of the colonists and a 100% denunciation of the role of the British government as evil and unjust. Our cause had to be all shining justice, allied with the angels, theirs had to be all evil, tied to the devil in no war has the enemy or the cause ever been gray therefore from one point of view the omission was justified from the other it was deliberate deceit history is made up of moral judgments based on politics we condemned lenin's acceptance of money from the germans in 1917 but were discreetly silent while our colonel william b thompson in the same year contributed a million dollars to the anti-bolsheviks in russia As allies of the Soviets in World War II, we praised and cheered communist guerrilla tactics when the Russians used them against the Nazis during the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. We denounce the same tactics when they are used by communist forces in different parts of the world against us. The opposition's means used against us are always immoral, and our means are always ethical and rooted in the highest of human values. George Bernard Shaw in Man and Superman pointed out the variations in ethical definitions by virtue of where you stand. Mendoza said to Tanner, I am a brigand. I live by robbing the rich. Tanner replied, I am a gentleman. I live by robbing the poor. Shake hands. The third rule of the ethics of means and ends is that in war, the end justifies almost any means. Agreements on the Geneva rules on treatment of prisoners or use of nuclear weapons are observed only because the enemy or his potential allies may retaliate. Winston Churchill's remarks to his private secretary a few hours before the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union graphically pointed out the politics of means and ends in war. Informed of the imminent turn of events, the secretary inquired how Churchill, the leading British anti-communist, could reconcile himself to being on the same side as the Soviets. Would not Churchill find it embarrassing and difficult to ask his government to support the communists? Churchill's reply was clear and unequivocal. Not at all. I have only one purpose, the destruction of Hitler and my life is much simplified thereby. If Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. In the Civil War, President Lincoln did not hesitate to suspend the right of habeas corpus and to ignore the directive of the Chief Justice of the United States. Again, when Lincoln was convinced that the use of military commissions to try civilians was necessary, he brushed aside the illegality of this action with the statement that it was indispensable to the public safety. He believed that the civil courts were powerless to cope with the insurrectionist activities of civilians. Must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts, while I must not touch a hair of a wily agitator who induces him to desert? The fourth rule of the ethics of means and ends is that judgment must be made in the context of the times in which the action occurred and not from any other chronological vantage point. The Boston Massacre is a case in point. British atrocities alone, however, were not sufficient to convince the people that murder had been done on the night of March 5th. There was a deathbed confession of Patrick Carr, that the townspeople had been the aggressors and that the soldiers had fired in self-defense. This unlooked-for recantation from one of the martyrs who was dying in the odor of sanctity with which Sam Adams had vested them sent a wave of alarm through the patriot ranks. But Adams blasted Carr's testimony in the eyes of all pious New Englanders by pointing out that he was an Irish papist had probably died in the confession of the Roman Catholic Church. After Sam Adams had finished with Patrick Carr, even Tories did not dare to quote him to prove Bostonians were responsible for the massacre. This, according to Sam Adams' Pioneer in Propaganda by John C. Miller. To the British, this was a false, rotten use of bigotry and an immoral means characteristic of the revolutionaries, or the Sons of Liberty. To the Sons of Liberty and to the Patriots, Sam Adams' action was brilliant strategy and a God-sent lifesaver. Today, we may look back and regard Adams' action in the same light as the British did, but remember that we are not today involved in a revolution against the British Empire. Ethical standards must be elastic to stretch with the times. In politics, the ethics of means and ends can be understood by the rules suggested here. History is made up of little else but examples such as our position on freedom of the high seas in 1812 and 1917, contrasted with our 1962 blockade of Cuba, or our alliance in 1942 with the Soviet Union against Germany, Japan, and Italy, and the reversal in alignments in less than a decade. Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus is defiance of a directive of the Chief Justice of the United States and the illegal use of military commissions to try civilians were by the same man who had said in Springfield 15 years earlier, let me not be understood as saying that there are no bad laws, or that grievances may not arise for the redress of which no legal provisions have been made. I mean to say no such thing. But I do mean to say that although bad laws, if they exist, should be repealed, still, while they continue in force, for the sake of example, they should be religiously observed. This was also the same Lincoln who, a few years prior to his signing the Emancipation Proclamation, stated in his first inaugural address, I do but quote from one of those speeches when I declared that I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I made this and many similar declarations and have never recanted them. Those who would be critical of the ethics of Lincoln's reversal of positions have a strangely unreal picture of a static, unchanging world where one remains firm and committed to certain so-called principles or positions. In the politics of human life, consistency is not a virtue. To be consistent means, according to the Oxford Universal Dictionary, standing still or not moving, men must change with the times or die. The change in Jefferson's orientation when he became president is pertinent to this point. Jefferson had incessantly attacked President Washington for using national self-interest as a point of departure for all decisions. He castigated the president as narrow and selfish, and argued that decisions should be made on a world-interest basis to encourage the spread of the ideas of the American Revolution, that Washington's adherence to the criteria of national self-interest was a betrayal of the American Revolution. However, from the first moment when Jefferson assumed the presidency of the United States, his every decision was dictated by national self-interest. This story from another century has parallels in our century and every other. The fifth rule of the ethics of means and ends is that concern with ethics increases with the number of means available and vice versa. To the man of action, the first criterion in determining which means to employ is to assess what means are available. Reviewing and selecting available means is done on a straight utilitarian basis. Will it work? Moral questions may enter when one chooses among equally effective alternate means. But if one lacks the luxury of a choice and is possessed of only one means, then the ethical question will never arise. Automatically, the lone means becomes endowed with a moral spirit. Its defense lies in the cry, What else could I do? Inversely, the secure position in which one possesses the choice of a number of effective and powerful means is always accompanied by that ethical concern and serenity of conscience so admirably described by Mark Twain as a calm confidence of a Christian holding four aces. To me ethics is doing what is best for the most. During a conflict with a major corporation, I was confronted with a threat of public exposure of a photograph of a motel, Mr. and Mrs. registration, and photographs of my girl and myself. I said, go ahead and give it to the press. I think she's beautiful, and I have never claimed to be celibate. Go ahead. That ended the threat. Almost on the heels of this encounter, one of the corporation...
1: So I just
0: want to give my uh, commentary on the the uh, hour or so of, of the book we've read so far. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very simple book in its premise. Uh, it's a very complex method that he wants to teach. Um, it's a very simple book in its premise, but it's a complex method that he wants to teach. And so, uh, as it mentions there in the introduction or in the first chapter, um, the the simple fact is that what he's trying to do is show a process by which anyone can create radical change. So a a process by which anyone can organize a large group of people towards a common positive purpose. And so as he says there in the beginning, you know, you he's not a communist, he's not a capitalist, he's not a uh, he's not right, left, center, up, down, forward, backward, whatever. Uh, What he wants is he wants to show people how to be an organizer, to how to be a person who organizes movements, and so uh, there's a reason why this is my favorite book. It's, um, in my opinion, it's the most concise definition of organization that I've ever seen. Uh, the The process by which a person organizes for positive change. Is a complex one. I mean, by definition. um, uh, As my mom says, you know, if you have ten people in a room, you're gonna have eleven different opinions. Um, The the simple fact is that, you know, anytime you're trying to organize a group of people, and it can be just a couple of friends, or it can be, you know, a company with ten thousand employees, um, anytime that you're trying to organize a group of people, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have people who disagree, you're going to have people who Think that you're stupid you're gonna have people who you know want to see you dead whatever um, you know the 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 place that most people stop the place that most people stop their effort is actually the place where an organizer um, starts their effort so uh, you know they uh I've seen it happen many, many times in many, many different areas, where you know somebody will be really excited. They'll be, like, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create this club. I'm gonna create this, you know, uh, you know, uh, we'll we'll do something completely non-political, come something completely innocent. Uh, they want to do a book club, okay, and not not some type of you know reading the Communist Manifesto type book club, but just a book club where they read, you know, Jane Austen or Shakespeare or whatever. So something that is non-controversial, you know, something that is not, you know,
1: oh, well, uh, this is evil. Uh, You know, they're not reading
0: 1984 in this book club. They're just reading something, you know, classic literature. And, you know, what, what I see happen is, you know, this person will be really excited. They'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm so excited to do this. I'm... I'm really passionate about it. I want to make sure that uh, my friends have this, you know, wonderful place where they can learn, and we'll have food, and we'll have games, and we'll have music. And you know, uh, coming up with the ideas is the easy part. You know, uh, coming up with the ideas. I, I've met so many people in my life who have wonderful ideas. I, I have met, you know. Thousands and thousands of people as I've traveled around to conventions and the thing that unites Every single person The thing that unites every single person is that every person that I meet has Incredible ideas and they, they could be 10 they could be a hundred they could be two as long as they have the ability to speak they have ideas that they can share and uh what I see missing for most people I would say at least 90% of people is they don't have the skills to be able to focus their effort and make change so why do I why do I say focused effort Uh, the reason why is because I see and I saw it many, many times with the consulting job, but uh, just in general, I see oftentimes people who, they want to create a change, they want to do something positive, and they don't know where to direct their efforts. So I I compare this to trying to run a race where you don't know where the finish line is. Uh, If you don't know where the finish line is and you just start running, you're putting in a lot of effort. You know, you're, 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 you know uh, I want you to imagine, you know, a runner running as fast as they can. That's a lot of effort. But the thing is, is that if you're not running towards the right destination, if you're not running towards the best destination, we'll say. Right is very subjective, but best is something that is subjective but measurable. Um, if you're not running towards the best destination for you, or your organization, or your family, or whatever, then all of that effort is wasted. That, that, is, that is something that I wish more people understood, is if you have the wrong goal, or if you have no goal, then it does not matter how much, it does not matter how much effort that you put in, you will never get to the place where you want to be. So for example, Uh, My lovely partner, my wonderful husband, Trey Playstead, uh, also known as Link Labrador, he is the most kind and intelligent, emotionally intelligent person that you'll ever meet. Now, he has dyslexia. He has dyslexia. Now, that means that he is not very good at reading. Reading is really challenging for him, and so he did not get very good grades in school. But when it came to speaking to people, you know, like a public speaking class or something, he had no problem with that. That was actually pretty easy for him. But when it came to actually reading textbooks, that was really hard for him. Uh, he, um, he talks about how, you know, he wishes that he had some of these, you know, reading technologies that exist now, like um, uh, like Google Lens, for example, he wishes he had that in school because he would have gotten all A's, obviously. I mean, he's a really intelligent person. But you know, whatever system in his brain that translates texts into language is um, really difficult for him because of his dyslexia. And, you know, that's something he was born with. It's not like it's something he can change. It's not something he can fix. It's just something that he has to live with. And so let's say for the sake of argument that he wanted to become a physicist. Okay. Let's, let's just say that that was something that he wanted to do. That would be extremely difficult for him if he did not have the tools to be able to read the stuff. So uh, a physicist, for example, has to be able to work with numbers. And you know, a 6 and a 9, the only thing different between them is whether it's up or down. And if you have dyslexia, it's almost impossible (laughs) to figure out what is up and what is down. So anyway, uh, this is a long-winded explanation, but my, my point is is that he through the direction of wonderful teachers and his mom and his grandparents and all these people that helped him in his early years, he went to a trade school. So basically, relatively soon after high school, or, or during high school I should say, he went to a trade school and he learned woodworking and that's perfect for him because it doesn't require a bunch of reading. It just requires a lot of really good uh, effort with your hands and, and learning. And the thing that I come back to over and over, and as soon as I saw this, um, as soon as I saw this cartoon, it just really stuck with me. And it was a teacher on the Serengeti. okay? So the teacher is a monkey. They're on the Serengeti, the, the plains of the, the, the grasslands of Africa. And there's one monkey in the class, but all the other animals are different animals. So there's, you know a, Uh, um, you know, a giraffe, an elephant, a deer, a gazelle, you know, whatever. Um, A crocodile, doesn't matter. And uh, the test for whether or not they have learned the material is that... uh, And so what what I want to impress on people with this example is that in a world of... in a world of diverse knowledge. In a world of diverse experience, in a world of diverse um, learning styles and abilities, people have this idea of knowledge that is one-dimensional. You know, If you're good at reading, then you're smart. If you're good at math, then you're smart. Uh, but if you're good at woodworking, I mean it's a skill, but you're not smart, quote unquote, according to the, uh, according to the, um, the traditional definition of the, of the word. And what I would like to see is I would like to see a world in which everyone, whether they have dyslexia, whether they have disabilities, whether they have, um, Uh, A lack of resources where they have more resources than they need. Whatever whatever situation that someone is born into, I would like to see a world in which they can use their resources and their time and their abilities to do good. And um, I think that reading rules for radicals is one of the best ways that someone can learn those skills. Uh, People need knowledge. They need understanding. And uh, the only way that we're going to be able to do it fast enough that we don't have, you know, sea levels that bury all the coastal cities and all of that, uh, you know, th- these are things that are coming in the next 50 years. You know, there, there's speculation that sea levels might rise, you know, 30, 50, even more feet on average over the next few decades. and so. We have to do radical change radically quickly to be able to fix these problems in time. You know, to be able to fix these problems before they make things so much worse for all of us. And um, you know, if you don't believe in climate change, that's totally fine. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm a scientist. I, I'm not the type of person that says, oh, well, you have to believe this. Uh, you know, if, if you are someone who doesn't believe in climate change, fine, just leave that issue aside. What about education? Everyone agrees that the education system is broken in America. It is, it is woefully behind the rest of the developed world. Uh, the U.S. is something like 50th in terms of education and like 100th in terms of math. Something like that. It's, it's crazy. And there is no reason that a country as rich, as diverse, as powerful as the United States should have such a dismal educational record. Um, And the the problem is not with the teachers, the problem is not with the schools, the problem is not with the resources even. You know, the, the, the U.S. spends more per student than almost any other educational institution in the world. Uh, you know, it's, if I recall correctly, it's about $8,000 per student in K-12 through 12 per year. That's a lot of money. And uh, the fact is that we are not, as a society, taking into account the different learning styles of different children. We're not taking into account the absolutely huge advances in science and technology, you know, the internet, video all of these things, I'll just give one very simple example to prove the point. About one in ten people say that their best learning style is through lectures and reading books. So for one in ten people or so, they're really good at learning from books and lectures. Now for nine in ten people, that is not the case. For something like four in ten, if I recall correctly, I'd have to look it up, but, I recall correctly for something like four in ten people they learn best from videos and so if we're talking about a learning system that is you know just by basic arithmetic it's four times more effective to learn from videos than from books and it costs us nothing nothing it costs us nothing to show videos to kids or for them to watch them on their phones or whatever if, if we're talking about a very expensive way to do education, which is through textbooks, versus a free way to do education, then why would we not use the free option and reallocate those resources to things that people need, like free school lunches, or uh, health care for kids, or, um, you know, more sports in schools so that kids can stay more active and have less issues with obesity, for example so uh what i would like to see is not some type of dramatic you know oh we're gonna tear the system down you know all these types of things um i I love mr olenski's um framing of these types of issues of you know do not try to tear it all down do not try to tear it all down because in almost every case with with very few exceptions throughout history someone trying to tear everything down only leads to more suffering uh, especially in the short term but usually in the long term as well um the uh and so what i would like to see is i would like to see a societal change for the better you know a, a societal change where uh, you know, as an example, I would like people to have more human rights. I, yeah, I, I think that human rights are a concept that is so positive for the world. And the right to healthcare, for example, is a right that I think should be enshrined in international, in national and international law. So the right to health care. And, and let me explain why I think that this is one of the things that we should organize for. So, healthcare is something that you cannot change, okay? You cannot go through your life without healthcare if you want to live to the age of, you know, 70 or 80, like most people do. Uh, It's not a choice to use healthcare services. So, you know, as an example, let's say that we lived in a perfect society, uh, or in a society of perfect information, which we absolutely do not. But let's, let's say that we did. And someone could easily look up on their phone and see exactly how much their healthcare was gonna cost. Now again, we do not live in that country. It, healthcare pricing is very opaque, it's very convoluted by, by design. But uh, let's say that you could look it up. Now, someone gets into a car accident and they have to go to the emergency room, they have to go to the nearest emergency room that there is. Because if they do not go immediately, they will die, okay? That is not a choice, okay? If if the, if the choice is between death or health care, I'm sorry, I don't care how much it costs. I'm going to get health care. Uh, I don't care if it puts me in debt. Because if my life ends, it does not matter how much debt that I have. It doesn't matter how much, um, you know it costs to get the healthcare if the healthcare is what is the difference between life and death. And so unlike something that would be a luxury good or a uh, even a, even a necessity, you know, it, something like food is a necessity, but we have the choice to be able to pick what types of food we would choose to eat. So, you know, some people eat mediterranean food, some people eat chinese food, some people eat american food, whatever. That is a choice. And you have the choice, you know, assuming that you have um, you know, enough money to avoid more than just rice and ramen and beans, but uh, even in that case, you have the choice between different types of foods, whether how much you eat, how much fast food that you eat, that kind of thing. With healthcare, you don't have that kind of choice, especially in America, but in other countries as well. You, you do not have a choice in terms of what healthcare that you're going to use. And so because of that, it is ludicrous that we are treating it as if it is a free market. Because it is not a free market in any way. Uh, you know, no more than um, uh, caskets are a free market. You know, a person using a casket is dead. They do not have a choice as to what their family gets for their funeral. Uh, you know, i we're we're putting aside for the moment the complications of you know a will and stuff like that but my my point is that like if my mom chose to get me a 10 million dollar casket I would have no say in the matter because I would be dead there is no choice in that decision and I'm contending that uh, that healthcare is a similar type of market where the market does not reflect reality where the market does not reflect uh, you know the lived experience of real people and so anyway, um, that is just one of many areas that I think needs to be fixed in the modern economy. So, uh, that is my soapbox for the day, and um, we will continue on with more of Saul Alinsky's book. Uh, we will read, you know, I don't know exactly how much, but today we read about an hour of it. Um, I did speed up the audio a little bit, um, I put it, in... I gotta go. Forcaster? That's right. W A C A S T E R. Like I said, I should be in the computer.
3: Okay, well.
0: Okay. And what did you want to make a designation for? Sure. So I do a children's television show on YouTube and um, I'm interested in working with Scientology T V. So I received a message um, Uh, about a month ago invite or no not a month ago about a week ago inviting me to do a segment for Scientology TV and so I just wanted to um, I wanted to be put in contact with them to be able to work with them directly uh, so that there's not miscommunication over email and such so um, would you be able to transfer me to their office?
3: So you said
0: you've done services with us before? Yeah, I have. I did the personal efficiency course. I visited the L. Ron Hubbard, um, not the birthday celebration, but the New Year's celebration. Uh, that was a few years ago, and then I visited the uh, the St. Louis org just a couple of weeks ago to restart my uh, my services.
3: Okay. <clears throat>
0: Or... Yeah, so uh, I think that the the mission of Scientology TV is a really important one and um, I would like yeah. to, I would like to participate in it myself and I would like to donate to making it even uh, uh, you know, donate to making it reach more people so I, I um right. yeah. I, I was an early investor in Bitcoin and so I have um, I, I don't even know tens of thousands of Bitcoin in my wallet, and so I can, uh, I can just withdraw some of that and, and write a check to whoever whoever would be uh, able to use it most effectively. Okay. Well, did
3: anyone ever talk to you about the International Association of Scientologists? Like laid out of the IAS.
0: Yeah, I have a membership to the IAS, or I did. I, I don't know if I still okay. do. Oh, okay. again, when you make. Uh, Uh, let's see. So, so far I've just paid for services. I, I don't know how to submit a donation. Okay, I can help you with
3: that one
0: second, okay? Okay, you just let me know. I also wanted to make an order from the bookstore. I just need to know who to call to do that. I prefer to do it over the phone instead of over the internet.
3: No, no problem. I can actually help you. Okay, cool. I'm um, just trying to find the link um, towards where the IES. Just because when it's like a word non profit, mm-hmm. as you may know. Oh, of and course. so yeah. any donations we try and like forward it to the IES or like you just said like the bookstore. Like, yeah. we just don't take like, donations like that
0: because we have to, like, put it in foreign groups, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to do it as yeah. a tax deduction, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, sure. I, I prefer to give my money to you guys and not the government. That's, uh, that's a big thing for me, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and
3: actually helps. I don't know if you know about, like, Uncle Sam and
0: everything. Like, um, when people pay,
3: like, for the non-profit. Yeah. When give the me donations, they have to
0: Right. Oh no, believe me, I'm well aware. I I have uh I have something like uh oh god, I I the the number went down by like forty percent or something because of the Bitcoin crash, but before the crash I had like ten billion dollars in Bitcoin or something crazy. So yeah, the more the more Uh, that I can the more that I can give to you guys and the less to Uncle Sam, that would be fantastic.
3: That's great, yeah. I don't, want, I
0: don't even know what Bitcoin is, I told you. Oh, so I actually, uh, like I said, I was one of the first investors in it. I bought it when it was like one cent, and now it's worth like $30,000 per coin. <laughs> yeah. It, so okay, you got lucky, huh? Lucky? Well, I knew, like, I, I mean, you could call it luck, or you could call it, you know, the tech. I mean, it was it was all because of the tech that I knew to invest in it. Oh, there
3: we go. Yeah, so I guess like the more you pay, the more you get
0: away what? What do you mean? I don't know.
3: Like, I've never really done Bitcoin. I've heard about it. I've heard about people doing it. I just never really understood
0: it. Yeah, no, it's 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 not too complicated. It's just like any other financial investment, like owning a house or something like that, but it's just a digital currency, a digital asset instead of a physical asset. So the same way that a house can go up in price, Bitcoin can go up in price. It's just Bitcoin went way up more than anyone ever expected. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, okay. could, I could see the potential in it. I invested in it in 2009 when it very first started.
3: Really?
0: Oh yeah. Well, like I said, I have and, like, and
3: so I guess like- So I guess like in the last couple of years it's gotten bigger?
0: Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, so Bitcoin as a whole is now worth over $1 trillion, and I uh-huh. I happen to be one of the very first people to invest in it, just because of my knowledge of the financial markets and uh, my knowledge of investing and all of that, I, I could see the potential in it, and so I invested a couple yeah. thousand dollars on, like, the first week that it existed, and now that money is worth, like, $10 billion. <laughs> that is so
3: cool.
0: Yeah, well, and I want to do good with it. I want to do good with it. I want to help Scientology, you know, to be able to uh, to make more clears and to, uh, you know, for example, I like I said, I do a children's television show, and I was thinking, since they invited me to come on the Scientology TV network anyway, I was thinking they might want to do some type of collaboration where I could do some type of show where, you know, teaching kids about science, or Scientology, or L. Ron Hubbard, or whatever. I- I don't know, I- I know that Scientology has some, like, school efforts and stuff like that. I was thinking that that would be a good, uh, a good partnership. Sure, yeah,
3: definitely. Okay, give me one moment, okay? I'm just gonna put you on hold
0: for a second. Okay, you just let me know. Okay.
1: So,
3: oh, sorry, your, your last name you said was W-A-C, that's Yep. Cat, yep.
1: A-F-T-E-R? That's correct. Okay.
0: Like I said, I've done a couple of classes, I'm just getting back into it um, after a couple of years of being busy with work. So, uh, I, uh, I recently had an accident, unfortunately, and so now I'm on uh, Social Security Disability. And, uh, so I have time to actually do the classes now. Yay! Yay! That's so good! And are you
3: located in L.A. or where are you
0: now? Uh, I was located in L.A. when I was doing art school there a couple of years ago. That's when I went to the, uh, to the New Year's celebration. Um, but, uh, I'm now currently located in Indianapolis. Oh, speaking of which, I want to actually, I was talking to the people in St. Louis when I was visiting there. I was visiting family in St. Louis and I was talking to them about starting a mission in, uh, in Indianapolis. I understand there's not a mission here. Yeah,
3: that's true.
0: Yeah, so I was thinking that might be something uh, that I could do, uh, maybe working with some of the volunteer ministers or something. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the possibilities are. I'm, just, I, I'm interested in what, what I can do to help uh, you know KSW and all that.
3: Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, what I was trying to have you do because you said you wanted to donate, how much were you planning on
0: donating? Well, I, what I want to do is I want to uh, make Scientology the beneficiary of my will. So, uh, okay. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the process is. I'm sure you guys have lawyers for that. But um, mm-hmm. basically, you know, it could be next week if I have some type of horrible illness, or it could be, you know, 100 years from now, but just whenever I die I want all of my uh, I want all of my money to go to you guys. Wow,
3: okay. No problem. So, cause what we can do, you said you had a membership. Do you remember what your membership was for the IES?
0: What my membership was? What do you mean? No, not what it was, but
3: what it is. Like, cause you said you've done a membership. Now, we call it membership, just because it's like, it gives it a name and a title, right? But um, mm-hmm. the IES, what it does is that it's the backbone of Scientology, where basically, with the donations that are made to the IES, we are then able to um, fund the campaigns, like, volunteer ministers, shoot by drugs, human rights, things
0: sure. like this. Oh, yeah. So that we
3: can then provide, you know?
0: Yeah, here, I've got the my... The
3: IES is what, like, funds and keeps going, like, the Scientology Network, and... Of course. Like, volunteer ministers being able to go out and help out, like, disaster, cities, and zones and right. things like that. Just to help out the community. Right?
0: Yeah. Do you want me to just read you my, uh, do you want me to just read you my membership number? Would that be helpful?
3: Sure,
0: yeah. Yeah, I have my card here, so let me just pull it up. I am James
3: Halliday.
0: Sorry, sorry. Hold on one second. That's my show. Uh, give me two seconds. Hold on. Uh, there we go. Okay. Let me see what the number is. Uh, where is it? Here we go. Okay. So the membership number is 111 005 And that was from, uh, let's see, that was in January of 2017 that I joined, if I remember correctly. Okay. I'm just going to read
3: back the number, okay? Okay. It's 111 one, 0101310052210? 0, 1, 0, 1, 1, 0, 0, 2, 2,
1: yes, that's correct. Okay. Okay,
3: give me one moment,
0: okay? Okay, just let me know. J e f f e r y. Oh shoot! It looks like it's in. It's met, It's spelled incorrectly on my card. It says J e f f r e y on my card.
3: Wait, sorry. Say that again.
0: So on the membership card for IAS, it says uh, J e f f r e y. That is incorrect spelling. Oh wow.
3: A-E-F-F-R-E-Y?
0: What? No. J e f f. E-R-Y. Jeffrey.
3: J-E-S-S-R-E-Y.
0: That is what it says on the card. My, the actual spelling is E-R-Y. Oh, uh, yeah.
3: because yeah, I couldn't find you
0: for a minute, so I was just trying to find it how it stop? Right. Sorry. I must have, uh, I'm uh, maybe... I'm so i don't sorry re-
3: about that. Even if we have to send you a new one, then we will. That's fine. And then your last name, your last name on the card is W A C A S T E R.
1: That's correct. Okay. Okay. And what does the card say? Like, does it say
3: annual? Does it say three
0: months membership? What does it say? Uh, it says introductory membership. International Association of Scientologists, Jeffrey Waycaster, membership number. That's basically all it says. Okay, fine. One moment. Sir. Okay. Weird. Well, you should be able to look up that, uh, you should be able to look up that number. I mean, I still have the card, so.
3: Yeah, 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 I know,
1: That's kind of strange. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I'm not going to stress about it. But,
3: um, what we're going to do is that I can fill out a form for you, okay? Okay. And then, okay, um, or do you mind actually going to the website?
0: Uh, I prefer to do it over the phone if that's okay. I just, um, so I, I'm disabled, and so it's, uh, I have trouble, uh, like, uh, with some aspects, uh, it just takes me a long time to type stuff because of my disability. Um, again, I was okay. in a, I was in a car accident. So
3: you can only talk on the
0: phone. Yeah, I was in a car accident in 2020, so it's just easier for me to do it over the phone if that's possible. No, I'm not trying to be a bother. I just want... <laughs> no,
3: no, no, it's okay. Just trying to work it out for
0: you. Okay. Yeah, you just let me know what you need, okay? Okay, am okay.
3: I want go on the website.
0: Oh yeah, the membership is like a hundred dollars a year or something like that. How do I, uh, how do I sign up for that? Know a lot more about this than I do, my friend.
3: Okay. Well, what you just told me, you said $100 a month kind of thing? So like, because what we have is like a certain like
0: monthly, where it's like it's automatic payment. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Uh, what's the yearly membership fee? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Like I said, I'm on Social Security, so I got all the time in the world. <laughs> I am, I am in no, I am in, I am in no rush whatsoever, my friend.
3: that you have now because um the first one is like an annual membership right which is 250 dollars. okay and then it jump from annual to lifetime and then the lifetime is five thousand dollars okay okay so i don't know how much did you do the first time
0: uh, They just gave me the card. I, I don't I don't know the details on it. Uh, it was like an introductory okay. six month membership or something. I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know exactly okay. how that works. That's... Okay, no problem. Yeah, the
3: six month membership that comes when you do a class, because you did the class and then they gave you the free six months, right?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what happened. I did the personal okay. I did the personal efficiency course. Mm. Oh, and then they gave you
3: the it's like a little cardboard card.
0: It's a plastic card. It's blue and white.
3: Yeah,
0: plastic plastic. card. I was there. I was there at the at the LA org where you work. That's where I took the class. Oh, that's
3: so cool. Okay, maybe that makes sense as to why you're not in the system because it's not like it was like it's a free six months, but it's
0: not really like registered in the system, you know? Oh, okay. Well, how do I reactivate it? Is my next question.
3: Sure. Well,
0: I can help you do that. Now we solve the mystery. Okay, sounds good. <laughs>
3: yeah. <Okay. laughs> 27 minutes later.
0: It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So,
3: um, what is the amount that you're
0: trying to do? Uh, well, let me just go ahead and start with the basic membership, and then I'll withdraw some money from my Bitcoin, and I'll do the lifetime membership in a few weeks. Um, but uh, okay. I'll just go ahead and do the basic membership for now. Um, let me just make sure I have enough money in okay. my PayPal. Give me two seconds. Hold on.
3: Okay. And then we can do the correct spelling. This one, you'll get an official card. Great. Okay, with your name on it.
0: Okay, sounds good. And then, okay. uh, so, who, who do I need to talk to in terms of uh, in terms of working with Scientology TV? Uh, what what's their direct number? I haven't been able to find it online.
3: Okay. Well, who was the one that talked to you
0: about it? Uh, let me pull up the email. Give me one second. Because it was um, somebody messaged me over email inviting me to do a segment for their show, or to to do a segment for okay. the um, for the Scientology TV network. Uh, yeah. Let me pull up the email. Give me two seconds. Hold on. I'm sure it has the person's name on it. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. It's loading. Okay,
3: give me one moment. Okay. Okay.
0: Come on, load the page.
1: Okay, here we go.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, no. Do, like I said, I'm in no rush. You just let me know what you need, okay? Okay, okay
3: good. So we're just going to fill out this membership, and then we'll
0: talk about
3: the rest on the psychology Network, okay? Okay, sounds good.
0: Okay, good. And then, um... What I'm going to have to have you do is go ahead and fill out the thing, and then mail it to me, and I'll just send in a check, okay? Uh, because if it's...
3: What do you mean?
0: So, it, I need time to withdraw the money from my Bitcoin account. I can only withdraw, I think it's about $1,000 a day or something like that. Um, so okay. if you guys go ahead and, if you can fill out the form and mail it to me, what I'll do is I will just uh, write out a check for the Lifetime membership.
3: Okay, well, you don't need a $1,000. Like the first one, which is the annual one, it's only $250.
0: Oh, okay, that's fine. Well again, just mail it to me so I can look it over and uh, I will send it back in, okay? Okay, well what
3: is your address?
0: Sure, it's 5746 Prestonwood Drive
3: 5746
0: Prestonwood Drive P-R-E-S-T-O-N-W-O-O-D Drive Indianapolis, Indiana. 46254. And like I said, I'm interested in starting a mission. My my guess is I'd probably just start it out of that house. So that would be the address for the mission, potentially.
3: Okay. You said Preston Wood drive, right?
0: That's right. P-R-E-S-T-O-N-W-O-O-D drive. It's one word. It's Preston Wood. Oh yeah. Uh, you can look it on by uh, Google Maps if you need to confirm it. Okay,
3: it says 46254?
1: That's correct.
3: Okay. <sighs> so do you want me to just send you the form? Or do you want to throw out the first one now, and then for the
0: bigger one, we send you the form? Uh, would you be able to do the following for me, which would be, if you could uh, just read me off the questions, and I will give you the answers, and then just write it down for me on the form, and then send it to me in the mail? Sure. Sorry, like I said, because of my disability, it's just hard for me to do, like, typing and writing and stuff like that. What's the
3: first name?
0: Sure, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y
3: Okay, last name.
0: Waycaster, W-A-C-A-S-T-E-R And
3: street address?
0: Yep, that's the one I just gave you. Oh, and sorry to interrupt, but uh, just whenever you're ready, I have the email pulled up from uh, S M P, so I can uh, I can tell you all the information about like who contacted me and all that.
3: Yeah, that's great. Okay,
0: yeah, just whenever you're ready. Okay, I'm just
3: filling in your address right now. Yep.
0: Email address is um, let's see, it's fox f o x labs l a b s corp c o r p at gmail.com, That's right. Fox f o x labs l a b s
3: and then
0: corp c o r p like corporation. Oh, okay. That's my uh, my business email for my show.
3: Oh, okay. And then Corp, is it like an S or just C-O-R-P?
0: C-O-R-P, no S.
3: Okay. And is
0: it at? At gmail.com.
3: And then, is this number that you call me from your mobile number?
0: Yes, so that's my mobile number and uh, it's also my business number as well. So that's the, that, this is the number that um, you know sponsors call in and stuff like that.
3: Okay,
0: that's 317-126-6379, correct? That's correct.